I'm not going to start by criticizing the Trump administration's handling of the disaster in Houston. Uh, frankly, it's it's too early to know yet how it's doing. And I'm honestly rooting for them to do the best job possible because that's what the people of Houston, Southeast Texas, and Louisiana need right now. And there are so many amazing stories of heroism and humanity and decency coming out of Harvey, like uh, Mattress Mac, the, the man who opened up his furniture stores and warehouses, to hundreds of victims so they'd have somewhere comfortable to stay. But this is a podcast about Donald Trump, and at the very least, we need to talk about his personal behavior during Harvey. Why? Because like everything else he does, this is not normal. Hello and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney. And the amazing, although not at all surprising thing about Trump's behavior during Harvey is how he has made the entire storm about himself. He started out by bragging about the size of the storm, as though it was somehow to his credit that the storm had, quote, record-setting rainfall and was, quote, historic, all caps, of course. He seemed genuinely giddy at times that it was a big deal that this huge storm hit while he was president. When I'm president, we'll have the biggest storms, just, just tremendous. So then Tuesday, he goes down to Texas and thankfully does not try to go where the storm is still ongoing, doesn't try to go to the flooded areas. That would have been a terrible idea. But what shocked me, what really shocked me is that on that trip, he did not meet with a single victim of the storm. They couldn't find one person who had to evacuate, get one family to talk to the president about what it was actually like. And to me, that would have been the entire point of going to Texas. Instead, he just spoke to officials about their efforts, which, of course, is a fine thing to do. But he didn't speak to a single person directly affected by the storm. He did give a speech to a crowd of supporters, apparently a good crowd from what he says. Thank you, everybody. What a crowd. What a turnout. But he stood far away from the crowd and for his entire trip, never mentioned those who had died. He later said he had witnessed the devastation of Harvey firsthand, which some are calling an exaggeration. But in fact, that's a straight up lie. And now he's going back uh, Saturday and He'll probably get to see the actual damage then, and this time they'll probably remember to trot out a few victims for what will surely be some incredibly awkward hugs. But Harvey was another chance, maybe his best yet, for Donald Trump to show us who he really is. And he definitely did that. The thing about a huge natural disaster like Harvey is, it means you have to put everything else on hold, especially if you're president of the United States. It's a natural disaster. People are suffering, and it just looks bad to do anything political or self-aggrandizing, but this is Donald Trump we're talking about, so needless to say, he did things that were political and self-aggrandizing. Just after going to Texas to witness the devastation firsthand that he didn't witness firsthand, Trump went to Missouri to give a speech about tax reform. 
only it was so devoid of details it's barely worth talking about. Suffice it to say, Trump believes giving tax cuts to people like Donald Trump will fix the economy. Spoiler alert, it won't. But that is exactly the kind of event you cancel when there is a major natural disaster happening. It's not just politics, it's basic manners. It sends a signal to people who are seeing everything they own destroyed that they don't matter. And that's not all. Trump also finally sent guidance to the Pentagon on how to implement his bigoted transgender ban. I talked last week about it coming, and a few weeks ago I interviewed Emily Kroos about it. You can go back on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org, and check out the Week 27 episode if you want a full breakdown of the transgender ban. It's a horrible policy, and it's equally horrible that Trump tried to bury news of it during a natural disaster. It's just typical ugliness from him. But the ugliest thing he did during Harvey was pardon former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. It's really impossible to overstate what a terrible act this was. Remember, Arpaio was held in contempt by a Republican-appointed judge for refusing to stop racial profiling. If you were a Latino person driving in Maricopa County during the Arpaio era, there's a good chance you'd be pulled over and asked to prove your right to be there. And that's just what he was pardoned for. He has a record of anti-immigrant, straight-up racist, cruel, and bizarre behavior. He tried to entrap someone into attempting to assassinate him. He was the only person more devoted to the Obama birther cause than Donald Trump. And he treated accused criminals like animals. He's honestly the very definition of a bad person. And not only did Trump pardon him, but he pardoned him during one of the worst natural disasters we've seen in our lifetime. And Trump actually said he did it at that moment for the ratings. For the ratings. I'm not making that up. Well, a lot of people think it was the right thing to do, John. And actually, uh, in the middle of a hurricane, even though it was a Friday evening, I assume the ratings would be far higher than they would be normally. You know, the hurricane was just starting. This was Trump's first pardon. It didn't go through the usual process involving the Department of Justice Pardon Office. And he did it because Arpaio is a political ally. Because Donald Trump's base loves Arpaio. And because they share some truly awful values. He did it while people's homes were drowning in Houston. He did it because he doesn't care. You know, it's been a while since we've talked about Russia. I've actually kind of missed it. But this week, damn, did it come back with a bang. Big revelations that show the investigation is advancing. First, we learned that despite Donald Trump's near-constant protest that he has never ever had any business connections with Russia or in Russia or having to do with Russia, it turns out he was trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow during the presidential campaign. While he was running for president of the United States, he had his team trying to contact the Kremlin to help move through a deal to build a tower in Moscow. Now, I'm not saying this had any impact on his campaign. Hell, from the reports, it sounds like they couldn't even get a callback from the Kremlin because they called a general information line. But remember, there are millions of dollars at stake in these deals. And ask yourself the kind of behavior Donald Trump has shown when it comes to money. This is a man who values 
every dollar he can get his grubby little hands on. And you have to ask yourself if his constant pro-Putin rhetoric during the campaign had anything to do with his hope of getting some business done in Russia. And if he was willing to butter up Putin to get some extra cash, what else was he willing to do? But that's not a question for me. And it's not a question for you, unless you're Robert Mueller. In which case, hello, Robert Mueller. Thank you for listening. Huge fan. Uh, Please feel free to get in touch. We can do an interview on background, of course. Wink, wink. Uh, These are questions for Mueller. And it looks like he's getting closer and closer to finding some answers. There were two big news items this week about his investigation. Uh, The first is that he's partnering with New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. Why does that matter? First, Schneiderman is the guy who went after Trump University and forced him to settle for millions of dollars. Second, he's a state prosecutor in the state where, if Trump committed crimes during the campaign, he most likely committed them, along with other people in real danger of prosecution, like Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, and and others that Mueller needs to build a case against. Why does that matter? Because Trump can't pardon state crimes. So even if he offers a blanket pardon to everyone in his circle, he can't protect them from prosecution in the state of New York. He can't protect himself. But that's not the only partnership with Robert Mueller that broke this week. Uh, Apparently, Mueller is also working with the IRS's Criminal Investigations Division. And this could be focused on anything and, and anyone in the target of the investigation. It may have absolutely nothing to do with the taxes Donald Trump has consistently refused to release to the American public. I'm sure those are above board. A lot of people have hopes pinned on Mueller's investigation as the thing that will finally bring down Trump. But the truth is, until he starts sending down indictments or releases a report, we honestly have no idea what is behind that curtain. It's all too easy to speculate based on what we want to come out of the investigation. But don't forget, we aren't the only ones speculating. So is Trump. We see Mueller working with Schneiderman in the IRS, and we get hopeful. Trump, he gets scared. After the protests in Ferguson blew up in the wake of Michael Brown's death, one thing that was clear from the images across all our TVs was that our police forces were starting to look too much like the military. Automatic weapons, armored vehicles, cops are looking less and less like they're there to protect and serve the communities they spend time in. And that's why the Obama administration was ending a program that allowed the military to transfer surplus equipment to police departments. Because police departments are not the military, and we should not pretend that they are. But Jeff Sessions' Justice Department has decided to reinstate the program, for the same reason he's canceling DOJ reviews of police tactics. Because Jeff Sessions' number one goal as attorney general is to return as much power to the police as possible, to give them everything they need. And it's not just about big guns and armored vehicles. It's about letting police operate with impunity, keeping them from being held accountable, no matter what they do. So this action, it doesn't just send heavy equipment to police forces. It sends a message. Do what you want. Look, we all know our president is fucked. He's not smart. 
He's impulsive, he's whiny, he only cares about attention, and he's the president. We all have to live with that. But the people who work with him have to live with it every minute of every day. And let me be clear, I'm not trying to elicit pity for the people who work for Trump. Fuck those people, they're bad people. And when they feel stressed and angry and guilty, it's no less than they deserve. There are no heroes working for Donald J. Trump. And when members of his administration contradict him, it isn't an act of bravery. But it's still important to note those moments, because because this White House is, in its entirety, an agent of chaos, and it matters where the cracks form. Remember, this is a White House that has fired a chief of staff, a deputy chief of staff, a chief strategist, a national security advisor, two communications directors, a press secretary, and whatever the fuck Seb Gorka was. So when those cracks start coming, you never know when a piece is about to break off. This week, two big breaks. First, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was on Fox News Sunday and was asked about the president's comments on Charlottesville. Let's listen to what he said. And the president's values? The president speaks for himself, Chris. You hear that? The president speaks for himself. First of all, that is a huge and deliberate insult to his boss. The president speaks for himself? No, he doesn't. He's supposed to speak for all of us. And let's remember what he said. Let's never forget what he said. Very fine people, very fine people were marching with the people who shouted, Jews will not replace us. Tillerson distancing himself like that, it's literally the very least he could do. But it's a crack, and you can bet Donald Trump isn't happy about it. Uh, Another crack came because Trump said we were, quote, done talking with North Korea, which is the kind of thing a real president doesn't say because it's essentially a declaration of war. We're lucky. Pretty much everyone at this point knows what Trump says is meaningless, so we're not at war with North Korea yet. But Secretary of Defense James Mattis had to walk back what Trump said. Mattis said, you never stop talking, which is what a normal adult human being would say in that situation. He had to directly contradict the president, his boss, on a matter of potential war. And Trump noticed that one too. I don't know if either Tillerson or Mattis is going to resign or be fired anytime soon, but cabinet secretaries distancing themselves from the president, directly contradicting him... These aren't isolated incidents. These are what happen when you have a really, really bad president. You know, it's been a while. Let's do some quick hits. Quick hits. One key part of Obamacare is funding to help people who are buying insurance on the individual markets navigate the exchanges. There are ads to help people know when they can enroll, information about who is eligible for subsidies, and even navigators to help walk people through the process of signing up. These help boost enrollment numbers every year since the exchanges went online. But now, Trump is stripping funding for those efforts. Why? Because Trump doesn't want people to get insurance through the Affordable Care Act. More important than making sure people have access to care is making sure they don't get that access through a black president. The result? More families without insurance. But hey, it's not about healthcare. It's about scoring political points. Quick hits. We were going to do it. We were going to move Andrew Jackson off the front of the $20 bill and put Harriet Tubman 
possibly the bravest American who ever lived on the front instead. Sure, we were going to have to keep Jackson on the back, even though he was a giant turd of a human being, but life is full of compromises. Only the now-fired Steve Bannon convinced Trump that Jackson should be the model for his presidency, a race-baiting populist. Okay, that's a pretty good model for Trump, actually. But now the chances of Jackson losing his coveted spot on the 20 are much smaller. And this week, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin refused to say whether his department would move ahead with putting Tubman on the 20. Maybe we just need to convince Trump that Harriet Tubman is someone Americans are talking about more and more these days. Or we could change her name to Harriet Trumpman. Quick hits! There's a job at the Department of Education in charge of enforcement, which sounds odd until you realize that there are educational institutions that try to screw their students out of money. For example, let's say a famous real estate guy set up a fake university named after himself to teach people the secrets of his real estate success, but the classes ended up being worthless and he was just scamming money out of them. That, that might be one example. Another example might be places like DeVry University that advertise huge success rates for their graduates finding jobs that turn out to be as accurate as Trump's estimates of voter fraud. DeVry also recently had to settle a fraud case for millions of dollars. So naturally, who has Trump put in charge of enforcement at the Education Department? Former DeVry executive Julian Schmoke. Just one more way President Trump is draining the swamp. News broke Thursday that Trump was ending DACA, the program that deferred immigration enforcement against law-abiding immigrants who were brought to the United States as children. There are hundreds of thousands of beneficiaries of DACA, tax-paying, educated, employed people who contribute to our economy and our country, people like Juan Escalante, the digital campaigns manager for America's Voice, an immigration advocacy group. I asked Juan how he felt when he heard the news Trump was rescinding DACA. Nobody really knows what the conditions of this potential termination is going to look like. Our, our work permit is going to be renewed one last round, and then the program terminated, our, our renewals off the table entirely. So I would say that the amount of uncertainty that's out there is creating a, a, a very, very deep psychological, it's having a, a very deep psychological impact on, on a lot of people. Um, and I say that mainly because um, people are going back to school, they are, you know, going back to work, and every day that goes by, uh, they have to wonder whether that day of the week is the day of the week that Donald Trump just potentially terminates DACA in and of itself and upending their lives and putting their, their, their futures at risk. Because when you really think about it, we're not talking about just a program. We're talking about something that allows almost 800,000 people to have a work permit and a driver's license and a protection from deportation for up to two years as long as they meet certain requirements and pass a background check. Uh, so by, by undoing all of this, what Donald Trump is really, is really doing is essentially creating not only sowing more fear, but also essentially telling these young individuals, myself included, that they are free game for his deportation uh, force, uh, which we've seen rip up our families all across the country for the past six months. Can you take a step back and say a little bit more about what DACA is, just for those who don't understand it, don't know what it stands for, don't know how it got started. Just give a little bit of background on what exactly DACA is, what it does, and what taking it away means. Absolutely. Um, the DACA program, uh, also known as the Deferred Action 
for Childhood Arrivals uh, program. It's an initiative that was launched uh, by President Obama back in June 15 of 2012. And what the program does is essentially grant uh, certain individuals, uh, young immigrants who don't have a legal status in this country, who came into the country before the age of 16, remained in the country five consecutive years without interruptions, were present on the day of the announcement, and you know, made a certain, very strict set of requirements, including passing a background check, um, to obtain a work permit, a driver's license, and a deferral from deportation uh, for up to two years in exchange for a, a significant amount of uh, personal information so that you know, the federal government, you know, fully comprehends and understands who this individual is and why they're seeking this specific benefit that has been granted to them. Um, I will say that DACA is not a law. Um, it's an, an exercise in prosecutorial discretion, which means that the President of the United States uses authority uh, to create this program. So right now, um, you know, it's the re and and that's the reason why we find ourselves where we are right now because you know the current president of the United States is trying to revoke it uh, by the advice uh, by well to keep a, a campaign promise, but also at the advice of some of the very extreme anti-immigrant figures that surround that surround him in the White House. So tell me, tell me your story, Juan. What did you? How did you come to this country? What are the consequences for you? So my family and I came to the United States in the year. 2000. Um, I remember, you know, when Hugo Chavez was elected in 1999, my parents, you know, at, at that point had been targeted for robberies uh, multiple, multiple times. Uh, I remember a distinct uh, day, I think it was, it must have been around seven or eight years old, and my mother pulls up to a red light, just waiting for the turning signal, and this man that comes up to the, to the passenger window, which is where I'm sitting, and he essentially knocks on the window and yells to my mother that if she doesn't give him the car that she that he's going to pull out a gun and kill one of one of her children in the car and my mother just kind of swerved onto his side pushed the man off you know the vehicle and essentially sped off and you know it, it was instances like that that my you know kind of had my parents fed up uh, they understood that it was a very uncertain and in you know a certain time in Venezuela uh, not only politically, but also, you know, fearing for their safety and for the safety of my, my brothers and I. And uh, we came to the United States uh, seeking a better opportunity, a better life. And it, we began the process of, you know, coming over and filing our paperwork and getting in the so-called line that people often insist immigrants get into. And um, after six years of legal fees and paperwork and lawyers and back and forth, what we discovered was that our immigration attorney had mishandled our case and misfiled our paperwork. And despite our best efforts to reverse that, uh, we found ourselves, you know, out of the, the so-called line that um, immigrants are often pointed to to wait in. And once you're out of that line, there there really isn't a way back. And you know, we were undocumented from that from that point forth. And I. I discovered all of this, um, as many young people do, um, when it was time to apply for college. Um, I remember getting a call from one of the universities that I had applied to, and they essentially told me, look, we need a copy of your green card, you know, it's not on your one-year application, and um, I'm sorry, but like, until we see this, we can't, we can't finalize your admissions process. So I asked my mom for a copy of the green card, I she, she was like downstairs, and um, 
once I asked her this question, she just kind of froze and looked at me and, you know, kind of panicked and, you know, demanded that I get in the car with her. We drove to a nearby university, Florida International, down in Miami, and um, my mother demanded to speak with an admissions officer. And once we met, um, you know, once we sat down to be told what our future would look like uh, in terms of higher education, uh, I just remember sitting from across the desk uh, where the admissions officer, this very nice lady, essentially held up a chart and proceeded to tell my mother that because we lacked you know, a green card and an immigration status, that we will be charged out-of-state or international tuition, which was, you know, three times the amount of in-state tuition, and that we would be ineligible for um, state financial aid or federal loans or programs or anything like that. And upon this realization, my mother just, you know, she just crumbled. Uh, and she started crying, and, you know, we we kind of like ran out of the office in disbelief, and I just remember... Um, you know, her holding me and apologizing to me, you know, and telling me that your dad and I brought you here for better opportunities and look at what's happening. I don't know how we're going to make it or how we're going to get you to go to college. And Were you um, able to I go think, to college? Well, yeah. I think at that point in time, I specific, specifically, you know, made the promise to myself that I was going to make sure that regardless of what happened moving forward about, you know, papers or immigration status that I was going to fulfill my parents' dream and go get that education and go to college. And at the same time, I decided to kind of take matters into my own hand and be, and that's the reason why um, I became an, an immigration activist. You know, from that point forward, I just became, um, you know, a, a, an, an activist, an advocate to make sure that not only was I able to fulfill, you know, um, that promise of, of, of going and graduating from college, but that I also made sure that other people in my circumstances were also afforded that opportunity. Are you worried that as an activist, are you worried about being targeted by the administration that once they turn off DACA and don't renew work permits, uh, that you could be targeted for deportation? You know, I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't a little bit scared or, or anxious, but at the same time, I kind of recognize that we're at a moment where, you know, there's plenty of uncertainty to go around. And that's, uh, I guess, what you would call a leader in this movement or, you know, as, uh, as an advocate that has, you know, fought for this for a number of years now, almost 10. Um, I recognize that I have a role to play. And, um, you know, I cannot let younger dreamers or younger advocates, you know, uh, succumb to their fears, but rather lead by example and tell them that, you know, this is a moment of crisis. Everybody's scared, but, you know, we know that we belong in this country. We grew up here. We speak English. Most of us have an education or are pursuing one, and we've, we've worked. We've paid our taxes. We haven't done nothing wrong other than the fact that we wanted to contribute back to this country and to our community. So right now is not the time to cross our arms and, and, and go back to the shadows and cower in fear. Right now is the time to speak out as, you know, as loudly as we ever have because we, we cannot let ourselves take a step back. Um, at this moment or any moment in the future. So I don't, I don't think Donald Trump listens to this podcast. Uh, not very often anyway, <laughs> but if he did somehow, I managed to get him to, to listen to this episode. What would you want to say to Donald Trump? I think my message is very simple. Um, is that terminating the DACA program without a replacement or a, a solution, you know, to the, to the current situation that I find myself in, 
just as almost a million people, is is a really poor decision and a lack of leadership on his behalf. Donald Trump is caving to the um, to the suggestions of extremists um, like uh, Stephen Miller, who you know despises this program, and you know, to the to the suggestions of his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, one of the most anti-immigrant members of Congress that now leads the Justice Department. To me, the message to the president is very simple. The people who benefit from this program have grown up in this country for a number of years, and most of them don't even remember the country that they came from. That their ties and allegiances are to the United States. They speak English, they're educated, and if given the opportunity to fully integrate into our society, uh, and in which we're talking about a piece of paper, like this is literally where the conversation that we're having. Um, I have no doubt that he would be, as a businessman that you know, as a businessman that everybody claims that he is, he would see enormous results uh, just um, by the sheer size of the investment that the DACA program represents for the future of this country, for a generation of young immigrants, um, and you know for for the well-being of our economy and in and, and, and our society. Look, the, the president here has a clear choice to make. Either stand on the side of the anti-immigrant extremists or stand on the side of the people that want to make this country better, not only for themselves, but for everybody. Finally this week, a portrait, if you will, of a man who isn't getting what he wants. Axios reported on an Oval Office meeting where the president expressed displeasure over how his team has been moving forward on trade policies. Trump wants to be super tough on trade because, you know, he wants to be super tough in general. But he came across sounding like a pouty six-year-old who won't eat his broccoli. He actually yelled, tariffs, I want tariffs at his staff, according to the report, and added, China's laughing at us, laughing, because that's what Trump cares about. Not how many jobs he creates or how prosperous Americans are, but who is laughing at him? I know I am. That's it for another week with a sick joke as our president. I want to thank Juan Escalante for joining me this week and and telling his story. Don't forget, you can find links to all the stories I talk about on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. Find me on Twitter, at Jesse Burney, and like our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. And if you have any questions or comments, email me at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash thetrumpscorecard and make a pledge. Thanks. I know there might be a couple of more questions, but do you want to take one more? Would you want to take one more? Go ahead, pick. Well, uh, Go ahead. Please. Again? Lady. You're going to give her the same one? No, she's not the same lady. Another Go one. ahead. They are, they are sitting side by side. We have a lot side. of blonde women in Finland. Go ahead. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. Normal.